Hey, welcome to the Afikra podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. On the show today, we have Lina Munzer, the writer and translator who often writes about Lebanon in the New York Times as well as many other publications. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome everybody to another episode of Afikra Conversations. My name is Mikey Mhenna and our special guest today is Lina Munzer, who is a writer and translator living in Beirut. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Paris Review, 1843, Literary Hub and Bidoun, as well as in the anthologies Hekayat, an anthology of Lebanese women writing, Tales of Two Planets, an anthology of writing on climate change and inequality. Lina, welcome to Afikra. Thank you so much for having me. Really, it's nice to be here. And thanks to everybody who's attending as well from all around the world. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really a pleasure to have you on. Um, you know, I've been thinking, we've been trying to, uh, we've been thinking about having you on for some time. And and it's you're one of those people who live in, you know, we live in the same city, uh, have lived in the same city for some time. And I've always been aware of your work. And I always wonder, if you feel weird um, writing almost on behalf of some of your neighbors, because people send me your articles all the time. What does that feel like? I mean, it feels awesome that people do that and that people feel that I'm writing for them. You know, um, it's not something that I necessarily presume to do, um, but it is something that increasingly, as people have told me that I felt kind of that responsibility. At the same time, I try to I try to push that thought away because I don't I never want to have that in the forefront of my mind while I'm working. Now, definitely when it comes to certain venues, like for example, when I'm writing for the Times, um, which I've been very lucky to be able to do. I am very aware of the sense of like I'm trying to speak, let's say, not on behalf of all Lebanese people, but to speak in such a way that um that is kind of like larger than myself or larger than my own experience, or rather I'm sort of, if I'm talking about my own experience, it's because I'm filtering something bigger through that, you know? Um, because in that case, I'm very aware of a particular audience who is reading my work, right? So I'm always to a certain extent aware of the audience. Um, but yeah, I mean, it feels wonderful and, uh, Weird is not the right word for it. You know, I feel yeah. very lucky about that, um, you know, but like I said, it's something I try not to think about too much because I guess I never want my work to be didactic and I never want it to be aware of itself as being representative because I feel then in, you end up working at cross purposes in that yeah. sense. So you and I are in this similar age categories, which means that you were born during the Civil War. Do you think of yourself as being born during the Civil War? Do you think of the Civil War when you think of your childhood? Is that a image that is on the sort of uh, the corkboard on the wall? Yes and no. I mean, when I was growing up during the Civil War and I, I wrote this elsewhere, it was like, you know, it's like this thing that's like the weather, you know, for other people. It's a thing that exists, like you're born into it and you don't necessarily have an awareness of what life is like without that. I had a very, like, I was very lucky. I had a very happy childhood that was punctuated by hiding in shelters, uh, by stopping at checkpoints, by, you know, hearing terrible things that had happened to, you know, friends and neighbors, by knowing that um, there's always, there might, there's a potential car bomb in every parking lot. 
So these were things that I was very aware of as I was growing up. And at the same time, you know, there were my friends and there was my school and there was the neighbors that we played with. And, you know, so it was part of like this entire package of childhood. So it never occurred to me to feel sorry for myself or to wish something else. I mean, definitely there was the feeling of like wanting an end to the war and wanting an end to the violence. I was very aware that there was like bad guys out there. I didn't exactly know who they were. So my parents were very vague about all of the political stuff to do with the civil war, but I knew that there were like, you know, the bad people and the good people and the bad people were the people who were violent and disrupting everything. And so my parents really had been kind of the entire war trying to get us out of the country. And then six months before it ended, so like in uh, in July 1989, we managed to leave. So it was during like the worst of the fighting uh, with uh, during the own war. And so we arrive in Canada. And that's when I sort of became really aware of the fact that I had grown up during a civil war. And the way that people look at you and the way that people, you know, it's like you suddenly feel super othered and just completely different. And for me, the, the challenge or not even the challenge, because at the time I didn't have the language for any of this. You know, I just felt sort of hard put upon by like I felt like there was something I wanted to say or that in the way like with the kind of pity that people looked at me sometimes or the kind of even indifference or outright like, oh, of course, there's war like where you come from. All of that felt like. I wanted to have a voice to be able to explain where I had come from, which was exactly what I described to you, which is this idea of like a complete childhood filled with moments of joy and moments of sadness and moments of fear and all of these things. But it was all part of the package. It wasn't like the war was something separate from all of all of the good moments that I had. Right. Like yeah. it was part of part of the excitement and part of the joy and part of the, you know, and I think that that experience of not being able to express that during those basically very four short years that I was in Canada during that time has been the driver and the impetus behind so much of my work, you know, mm -hmm. and what I'm trying to express with it to a certain extent. Yeah, we'll get to this later, but I'm curious if you can um, sort of extrapolate your experience or superimpose your experience on kids right now and the experience that they must be having living in the electricity cuts and the and the gas lines and all that stuff. So I'd love to come back to that in a little bit. So I want to pull back the curtain. Earlier when I was emailing you and we were thinking about, okay, what date is this going to be? And we sent you the promotional image that we would use. And you came back to us and said, I don't think the title you guys, the subtitle you guys chose is accurate. Maybe you can describe me as regular chronicler of Lebanon's collapse. In what a sort of tongue the, in. What was the initial title that I objected to? I don't, I don't it know. Wasn't, it, it wasn't, I think we incorrectly thought you were a New York Times staff writer. And you're like, oh, hey, that's, right. that's, right. that's yeah. not exactly right. Um, yeah. Put writer, translator, and regular chronicler yeah. of uh, yes, yes. Lebanon's collapse in a tongue-in-cheek way, right? Um, right. But it's kind of an apt description, and it's one that I wonder if you expected this to be what you would be known for going into your work. Um, you know, as you as you started your career, is this what you were looking to do? <laughs> no. 
<laughs> I'm um, counting on a collapse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was just waiting and hoping for the collapse, uh, you know, to shape my career. Um, no, of course. I mean, this was not something that I thought about in the least. And I do think that it's something that I'm very interested in doing. And I, it's something that I find myself drawn to for many, many reasons. Some of them like personal and some of them like maybe more lofty. For personal reasons, I feel very lucky in that, I mean, this is also the way that I, you know, writing about the situation makes me feel slightly less helpless and makes me feel like I'm in communication with a lot of other people who are living it, but no, don't necessarily have the platform to write about it um, or to, to talk about it to others. So in a way, it's like I'm in indirect conversation with a lot of people. And that makes me feel less alone, frankly, because it's a situation in which one feels very often very alone and very helpless. So that's part of it. And the second part of it is also like, I'm always, I've always been fascinated. And again, this comes from my experience during the civil war by sort of the mundane unfolding of their daily life, like against the backdrop of like history with a capital H. And in the end, that's what all of us are living. And then you look back and, and, when you look back from the vantage point, like time becomes compressed and you see it as a series of events that are following one another. But in the end, what's happening between those events is daily life is unfolding. Um, and for me, that's where the humanity of everybody exists. And that's where the experience of loving a place and being heartbroken by its, by what's happening to it, like that's where it exists. It exists in like the daily moments that you're living in, which is one of the reasons why at some point when, you know, when I was asked to write about kind of the, the, the last piece that I wrote for the times, which was supposed to be like, what is happening now? Cause it's always like, what is happening now in Lebanon? You know? And for me, it felt important to write like a sort of day in the life kind of thing, because that's what I'm always interested in, you know, kind of the small moments. And I think for every writer to a certain extent, this is true, you know, is that you, you kind of focus your um, attention on the very small moments, because that's when you really feel the impact of the bigger moments. How do you avoid, and I think you avoid it aptly, um, how do you avoid the sort of the trap of the tragedy porn, right? Where people are looking for you to tell us how terrible it is and everyone is miserable and it's terrible. And how do you avoid that trap? Again, there's like so many layers to the answer because one of it is, it's something I've always been aware of. And again, I, you know, it's interesting that you asked me that question about the civil war straight up because it's almost like a blueprint for everything. So because for me, the, the, the reason that I felt so voiceless is because I had this tragedy porn imposed on me. Right. And that was the thing where I was like, no, I, you know, it's not a tragedy like it, you know, and you feel very dehumanized. So I, I was very, very aware of the fact that when you're seen exclusively through the lens of tragedy, there's a dehumanization naturally that's happening because so much of what you are and so much else of your experience is like being amputated from who you are. So you're being cut off from, from everything that like nourishes you and feeds you and makes you an entire person. So that's, th that's the first thing. And second, I think it's, it's also maybe an attitude. Like if you ask me, what is the thing that angers me most or like frustrates me most as a person is when people feel sorry for me for whatever reason, you know, when they're like, Oh, I'm so sorry that like, 
And it, it just, I don't know, it, it really upsets me. On top of that, there's the fact that I am a relatively quite privileged person. You know, I've always thought of it like coming from Lebanon or coming from, you know, this part of the world that's like very maligned. There's something that, or being a woman, let's say, there's something I've always thought about, again, because I'm not entirely crushed by it and I still have a voice. I've always thought about it as like the privilege of marginalization, if that makes sense, which is the fact that, you know, I feel like people who are born into the dominant culture, they have to do a lot of work to deconstruct where they come from and, you know, all of the layers that are surrounding them. And I feel like they have this sense of shock when they realize like, oh, the world is much worse than, you know, we've ever thought it was. Whereas we've never, you know, it's like that work has been much easier for us. You start out with a perspective on the world that is already, I feel, maybe more truthful or less selfish or less self-centered, not necessarily selfish. Like you're aware that you're not the center of the universe. Yeah. And I, I find that like a really useful thing for a writer because, you know, if you're, um, what makes your work better is to be an observer. And if you think that you are the central character in everything, I don't know. I feel like it's, I don't like work that presents itself that way. Okay. I want to ask you a really basic question. If the civil war ended in 1990. Did it though? <laughs> exactly. So there's my question. So yeah. what is the period between 2000, uh, 1990 and 2019? What is that period called? And have we entered a new period? Certainly we've entered a new period. I don't know if you can place these like very strict markers around that time. But again, I think in hindsight, in hindsight is when you label history, right? When yeah. you're living through it, it's very difficult um, to do something unless it's something like, for example, an uprising or something like the explosion where it's like truly like a momentous event that that bookmarks a certain period of time or that defines a certain period of time. So as I said, we left for Canada in 1989 and then I returned on my own in 1993. So the war had just been over for like a little while. You know, I always think about it like there's really like there's no more glorious place to be a teenager than like a freshly post-war city. It's exactly what you are. It's like this place full of potential and this place that could be anything. And there's all and of this chaos. Full of, full of and, pimples. Yes. And full of like acne breakouts, in fact. And so th there was something very exciting about that time. Now I realize that it was also cover colored by the fact that this was, that's how old I was at the time. And that's how excited I was about growing up and seeing things. I can also see now much more clearly why the people who were a couple of generations older than I was were so weary and so exhausted. And so, you know, because they had lived this experience that there was nobody around to protect them, even the illusion of protection that you get from your parents who are like, they're the ones who hustle you into the shelter. And, you know, there, there were a lot of people that did end up feeling that post-war giddiness, but they always had the trepidation of the past. It was always colored by the past. Whereas I think for my generation, our generation, uh, there was maybe a little bit more excitement and we were able to live this fact of like, we're on this trajectory that's like war, post-war and things are just going to keep getting better and they're going to, you know. And I think little by little, it started to dawn on me that um, in fact, this was, you know, this was not true. And I think the, like that period post 2005, you know, where it was like, 
on the one hand, you had the Syrian withdrawal um, and there was a lot of hope for the country. On the other hand, you had like all of this increasing sectarianism and this discourse that I felt like, oh, this is right there. Like it's barely, it's not even been buried. It's been barely underneath the surface. And you saw all of this like beneath the hope, all of this ugliness coming out in the way that people talked about each other and in the way that they, and I remember like watching TV at the time and there was somebody who was my contemporary who was being interviewed and saying all of these terrible things on TV. And I was like, oh, it's our time to ruin things. Like I'd always thought of my generation as like innocent. And now it's like, now we are the ones who are like, we're the ones now who are ruining the country, you know, and, and kind of continuing that legacy of ugliness. That brings us to 2019 and, and, and obviously 2020, 2021 and 22. Mm. If that 30 year period was sort of the post-war sort of fumes, the fumes of the, uh, the civil war still in the room, what is this new period that we've entered? You know, I think back specifically to the period of 2015, 2016, 2017, because that was a period yeah. that I was trying to write about before everything collapsed. Yeah. And that was a period of complete stagnation. And I remember at that time feeling that Lebanon had changed a lot. And you remember that, like, we didn't have a president, <laughs> you know, when yeah. we didn't have a president. Um, yeah, so that was a period of like complete stagnation. But now, of course, looking back on it, it feels like such a glorious period, you know? And I feel like it's the same way, like we're going to look back on those past 30 years or at least certain chunks of them, the way that our parents looked back on the period of the 60s and early in the 50s. 70s. Yeah. Yeah, which is yeah. this golden age, which if you go back in time and you ask people what they were actually living at the time, you know, there was a lot of suffering and there was a lot of inequality and there were a lot of problems. And, you know, and at the same time, in retrospect, based on what happened afterwards, you see it as this absolutely glorious time, you know, and so I'm sympathetic to the people that say down with nostalgia and we don't want to be nostalgic. And, you know, I mean, after all, it's that period of that we're nostalgic about that actually brought us here, you know. Um, and yet at the same time, I I understand, like I'm one of those people who feels a lot of nostalgia. And I think starting with 2019, it's very hard for me to think back on those days. Like if I talk about them a little, I get extremely emotional. I find myself like always on the verge of tears. Um, so I'm not gonna go into them too much right now, but I do feel that there was, there was a sense of, there was a sense of hope that in the end, I don't think, like, I think we'll, we'll have some kind of, you know, historical impact in some kind of way, right? Like, it's going to move forward, it's going to transform into something else. But like, we saw the world, or we saw the country, or we saw a kind of potential that we had not seen before. It's like this veil fell, and then came back up again. But it's, you can't really forget what you saw, you know, there was something completely magical about that. But then, of course, afterwards, you know, there's the collapse and the economic collapse. And I think that, you know, there's on the one hand, there's the country and what's happening to the country. On the other hand, there's what's happening to the world. Another reason why I reject tragedy porn is because I've never thought of Lebanon as, you know, a unique case. I've always thought about it as a microcosm for what's happening in the rest of the world. We're just ahead of the times, you know. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I've, it's it's on that point. I forget who I was talking to, but somebody was basically saying that Lebanon is case study. If you want to understand what the world's going to look like in 10 years, if we don't flip the switch, this is it. Welcome exactly. to the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, let's do these four quick Q&A and then yes. we have a question in the chat. So very quickly, what are you reading or watching these days? Um, I just finished like a really beautiful novel by Omar Al-Ad, which is called What's Strange Paradise. Um, mm. I really, it's it's really a beautiful book and it's very, you know, it's very poignant to read it now because it, essentially it's about like refugees and the plight of refugees. So I really like that. Also over the last, uh, you know, the last, let's say, time that I've been away, um, I also read um, a book by Rabia Jabir, which I'd never read him before. It's called The Baritus Medina Taht Al Ard. Yeah, we were talking to Karim uh, Abu Zaid yesterday, who translated. Oh. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And uh, th- th- I basically read that one just like tears coursing down my face yeah. like the whole time because it's again, it's like set in 2005 and you're like, oh, it's kind of about now. Like it predicts everything that's happening. Yeah. Um, in terms of watching, I just finished uh, a show that I absolutely love. It's called Search Party. Everybody should watch it. It's brilliant. And uh, but other than that, I f- I don't like I've started so many series and movies and then I just like stop in the middle because I have no concentration, but um, I have been playing this game called City Guesser, where you just go and plopped into the middle of a city and somebody is like walking around. Um, There's two versions of it. And there's one, the one that I play, well, it's like, it's not even a game, right? You're just walking through a city. You go to virtualvacation.us and then you pick the worldwide and then- Oh, cool. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's like the only thing that sort of calms me down. You just find yourself plopped in the middle of a city somewhere in the world. And you have to like, look at the signs and, you know, I mean, obviously it depends where the camera takes you and look at the atmosphere and look at the people and listen for the language that's being spoken and all of that. And then you have to guess what city you're in. And then, God, it's like, um, memento that, (laughs) He just like wakes up. He doesn't know where he is. He has to figure it out. It's incredible. Okay. It, make, it makes me love the world. You know, it's like I'm, I'm reminded. I'm like, oh, the world is a beautiful place. And, you know, cool. yeah. OK, we're going to move a little faster, Nina. OK, who would you yes, love to sorry. shadow for a day past or present? So I would uh, I, I would want to shadow somebody in, you know, who just has a completely different life than me. You know, somebody okay. that like not somebody famous, but like, I don't know, a farmer in Mongolia or like a a fisherman somewhere or like a young tech professional in India. What do people most misunderstand about your work? I don't know if anybody like misunderstands anything about my work, but what I hope that they do understand about it is, or, or, you know, I hope that, you know, as somebody who writes in English, but lives in Lebanon, so presupposes an audience immediately, right. Of either like English speakers in the Arab world or, people who are not familiar with the Arab world or semi-familiar or whatever, but like essentially people who understand English, you know, I hope that they, they, they're able to see like a sort of perspective that straddles both cultures in a way that isn't derogatory towards either. Let's put it that way. Cool. Last one outside of your profession, whose work do you admire or are inspired by? Honestly, if I, if you were ask me like whose work am I, you know, most inspired by is the people who are like closest to me, because these are people who I 
discuss work with. So I have like two dear friends who are filmmakers like Fadi Baki and Omar Naim. Um, my younger brother is a comedian, Wasim Al-Munzir. Uh, he's a stand-up comic. So we talk a lot about writing and about like how, cause like he does this kind of writing that's like immediate and on stage and you immediately can tell if like people love or hate your work. Um, so it's truly like the people who are like very close to me. There's a friend of mine, Emily Bloodworth, who's a poet as well. So we talk about like, you know, I, I look at the way that they make their work and, you know, it's these discussions that we have. So if like who has most influence on like my work, these are the people like, you know, the cool. artists and the makers who are like closest to me, you know? Cool. Shout out to Ahmad. Um, Lena, thanks so much. I, I, I wish we could talk for hours. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time and I appreciate you more for doing your work. Um, Thank so, you so much. Thanks. Thanks, thanks for, for having me. Thanks to everybody. And yeah, this was great. Thanks. <laughs> this will go up on the podcast and up on YouTube tomorrow. Uh, if you know any folks who would like to watch or listen, please share it widely. And um, we will see you next week. This is the last one for this week. All right, everybody. Bye. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to watch the full uncut version, go to youtube.com slash afikra. There you can see the full video versions of these podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to hafikra.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks. Thanks.